2: Last night took a L, but I bounce back, boy. I've been broke as hell. bounce back, bro. All right.
1: Well, we jobs, jobs, back. jobs. We've been hearing it for a while, and it is that time of the month where we get the jobs report. So let's break it down. We talked a little bit, Vince, about it with uh, Joe and Dave. We're going to turn to a couple very smart economists. Lindsay Piegza, she is chief economist at Stiefel. She joins us on the phone from Chicago. And Steve Blitz, chief U.S. economist for T.S. Lombard joining us on the phone from New York City. Lindsay, I uh, want to start with you. Top-line reaction when you saw this roll across? Not as much drama, it feels like, as we as we saw in February.
0: No, it was pretty much as expected, and it gives us a little more confidence that the economy is still on moderate footing after February's very disappointing reports. Now, it was far from robust, but again, it paints a picture of still solid momentum in the employment picture as as the Fed now moves to the sideline. So this really offered a lot of justification for a more patient position. It certainly doesn't give any indications that the Fed needs to raise rates further, but it also wasn't weak enough to suggest that the Fed may be thinking about a more defensive strategy in the nearer term.
3: Steve you had an interesting point you said outside of retail health and restaurants in your note uh, three of the lower wage sectors of the economy the pace of hiring continues to dip Can you fill us in a little bit more about that
2: yeah I mean I think that to the extent that you know hiring is robust as long as you want to work in a restaurant or you know home health care uh, but outside of that it really and computers to be to be fair but you know outside of that yes the pace of growth is slowing Uh, especially in the higher wage sectors, when we look at uh, average hourly earnings, they're slowing as well uh, on a rolling three-month basis. So uh, the picture is of a weakening or softening economy. Uh, But I agree with what Lindsay said. It's because the top-line numbers are good. It's good. There's no there's no uh, push here for the Fed to cut rates because the underlying data is soft. They can push back on any any uh, notion that because the the top line looks good that they, you know, they stop too soon. Uh, And uh, and so as a result, they're going to continue to sit and watch and wait. And so, Lindsay, synthesize the
1: jobs numbers, the report and the context that we got. From here as it relates to payrolls with everything else <laughs> that seems to be going on, you know, whether it's U.S.-China trade, whether it's Brexit, you know, where does this fit into the to the broader narrative that the markets are trying to uh, digest?
0: Well, I think the market's first and foremost trying to determine the directional momentum of the economy, the labor market, the being U.S. economy, big, that, right? Yeah, the U.S. economy. Now, the labor market, as I said, is a very big part of that, but there's other sectors that the market is focusing on. The consumer also losing some momentum with the latest retail sales numbers pretty disappointing. Business investment also trending towards a more negative uh, platform there with four of the last six months in outright negative space. We also see the housing market showing clear red flags with nearly a year of negative sales activity, at least on an annual basis. So, The market's first and foremost looking at this ongoing uh, loss of momentum in the domestic economy, Mm -hmm. and then we have these layers of geopolitical risks. As you mentioned, US-China trade really painting a dismal picture in terms of international growth, international relations, We have the uncertainty surrounding Brexit. Now, that's a little more nuanced. We're not necessarily implying that a no-deal Brexit would have a material impact on the U.S., but it does add layers of uncertainty. And, of course, we then look at the global outlook for growth, and we see some of these major economies, the U.K., Germany, Italy, China, all showing multi-year lows in terms of growth, and many analysts looking for a further decline. In those international uh, economies. Excuse me. So I think the market is really trying to digest just how much of that weakness is stemming from overseas versus how much of that weakness is being produced here at home.
3: No. Uh, Steve, I was uh, just going to sort of back onto the retail sales, if I could segue way back to that. Um, as Lindsay said, the retail sales numbers have not been great for the last three prints. We have only had one out of three in positive territory, and now we're seeing slower wage growth. What does that really say for the second quarter, um, given the potentially lack of disposable income for the consumer? Well,
2: it, it, says, it says exactly what uh, the numbers are telling you. Look, the economy is softening. There's no question about that and the curve and the movement in the curve beginning at the end of last year uh, is signaling that and it's not only is it signaling a softer economy, but it's going to create one by especially with the two-year trading through the funds rate by an increase in credit standards uh, by lending institutions, obviously banks. So. The interesting part of, what, of all the data uh, that Lindsay mentioned, and correctly so, I mean, because I agree with her, obviously, is that, <laughs> is, that, is that the numbers we're seeing, though, is because real rates got too high last year and it slowed the interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy, capital, goods, housing, and then the knock-on effect from the global slowdowns really that emanated from China and the emerging markets. We have yet to see, and my guess is summer would be the earliest that we would see it, the negative impact on uh, real activity from the shift in relative pricing along the yield curve that began late last year. So when you take all of that together, you've got one layer of, of, of weakening, which I think should abate a little bit in the yeah. second quarter. Uh, so I think that, you know, if we peg first quarter growth around 1-5 to 2, then I think the second quarter could be a little better than that. A lot of it's going to be an inventory swing that's going to help that. Right. It's the third quarter, though, that's really going to tell the tale of the tape about the momentum. And until we get there... Uh, namely the third quarter, and begin to see where the momentum of the economy is at that time. We are just on this kind of just watching and waiting and seeing and guessing. Yeah, steady as she goes.
1: All right, Stieplitz, Chief U.S. Economist for T.S. Lombard. Lindsay Piegza, she is Chief Economist at Stiefel. Thank you
2: both. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Bill Reddy, Chief Operating Officer for PayPal, joins us on the phone from San Jose, California. Bill, PayPal, so hip these days with the gram. Tell us about this.
4: Uh, <laughs> thanks for that. And thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, so you know, Instagram uh, announced uh, uh, Insta- check out on Instagram. And, you know, we're working with them to, to help uh, provide that. And I think it's a really great new tool for both buyers and sellers on Instagram. One of the really important trends in e-commerce over the last several years has been that there's an explosion of new places to sell uh, online. Uh, and there's a lot of great new places that shoppers are finding you know, great uh, you know, retailers, merchants, small businesses they wanna buy from. And Instagram has very quickly become one of the most important forums uh, of buyers and sellers meeting one another. And previously, uh, the buyer would link off to a separate site to complete those purchases. Now with Instagram uh, checkout, uh, you can do that right inside of Instagram. So when you find that great thing on Instagram that you're really interested in, uh, more and more there will be the opportunity to buy that right inside of Instagram. You can pay with PayPal to do so. Uh, and and so we're really, really excited about what that can do to give sellers a new form to sell in, and shoppers and buyers great places to discover really interesting things.
3: And and Bill, you're not stepping into anybody's real space here. I mean, this is sort of more of an impulse buy versus, you know, Amazon's not going to be threatened by this because when you go on Amazon to buy, at least I do, I know exactly what I'm looking for. This is sort of just shopping by, you know, sweeping through photos and
4: stuff, right? That's right, but... There's a tremendous amount of this that's happening already. If you sort of step back from just Instagram and think about the broader phenomenon of buyers finding things they're interested in outside of a traditional checkout or outside of a sort of traditional merchant site, uh, when we think about this segment of our business, which is really sort of marketplaces and channel partners, uh, last year alone we did more than $85 billion in volume of this type of activity just from our top 20 um, marketplaces and, and channel partners that's growing at more than 40% year on year. And that doesn't include our, our legacy eBay business, uh, which is one of those popular forums where people would meet. So there's a, a huge amount of this happening. Uh, of those, you know, I think Instagram is, is a place where Uh, You know, there's a tremendous amount of engagement already of this type. And so bringing that natively into Instagram with the option to pay with PayPal, I think, can lead to a lot more commerce, not just for small businesses and impulse purchases, but major brands and retailers are thinking about that as a key channel to engage. And so I think there's big opportunities for them as well. So, Bill, what,
1: one of the things I find interesting about your background and, and your job now is that you know we mentioned you're the CEO of PayPal overall, um, but and and I believe this is correct, and I hope you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you also oversee Braintree, which is the the company that sort of brought you into the PayPal family, and also Venmo. So, help us understand what you take away from that in terms of some of this behavior that you're alluding to. I mean, Venmo, I think is has been such a phenomenon, and and you know. I use it with my kids and my friends and and uh, and things like that. So help us understand what you're seeing from a behavior perspective.
4: Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely correct. I, I joined Braintree, or excuse me, I joined PayPal as CEO of Braintree and Venmo uh, more than five years ago. And Braintree, for those that aren't familiar, it's the payment platform behind Uber, Airbnb, right. Dropbox, Hotel Tonight, like all these great new apps. And so we see a huge cross section of this kind of activity, and then Venmo itself. $19 billion in volume growing at 80% year on year uh, in our last quarter that we reported. So a huge amount of activity. But the interesting thing is people are finding finding all kinds of new places to engage. Social is, a, is an important part of that. So, uh, you know, Venmo certainly the, you know, the, the conversations that happen there are a big part of the engagement. When you think about Instagram, you know, I think a really powerful part of uh, what's happening with Instagram is the social phenomenon of people saying, Oh, here's a designer that I'm really interested in, or here's a brand I'm right. really interested in, and you get to see what your friends are following and what they're interested in, and I think those are powerful signals. And so I think these phenomenon of, you know, uh, buyers meeting sellers in new forums, there's a tremendous amount of that, but then also people getting signals from their friends of what's interesting to them right. uh, and, 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 and following in these forums what their friends are interested in. I think that's a big part of, the interesting new opportunity with Instagram checkout is, is that you, know, you have the opportunity to go really engage with the great brands and great sellers that you, you follow already or that your friends are following and that you follow because of, of their interest.
1: Uh, just one last question before we let you go. What uh, what are you seeing as it sort of bubbles up, especially from your small uh, business customers in terms of their mood, their feel about their own that sort of their sort of your customers, customers? What what are you seeing from them in terms of their willingness to spend and, and where they're uh, where they're spending their money? Only got about 45 seconds.
4: Small businesses, you know, they're a huge part of the economy. Sixty to seventy percent of all jobs in, in developed markets, uh, you know, come from small businesses. So, huge part of the economy. A big focus for us. One of the things we're doing beyond helping those small businesses find new forms of selling is giving them access to their money faster. Um, in a lot of ways, as you've introduced electronic payment forms and things like that the technology got faster, but the money got slower. So right. we're doing things like funds now, instant transfer to banks that get them their money in seconds versus, you know, a lot of other electronic payment providers may hold their money for days or weeks at a time. We're putting that in their pocket right away, which gives them more opportunity to invest in their businesses, hire more employees, develop that new product, uh, engage in that new forum to sell. So there's a lot we're doing for for the 20 million plus businesses that we serve beyond these things. but. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of exciting new things developing there, and we want to give them not only the tools to engage in those right. forums and, and those exciting new things, but also give them better access to their money.
1: Great stuff. Bill Reddy, Chief Operating Officer of PayPal, also the CEO of Braintree and Venmo. The pride of Kentucky, Vince Signorella, uh, Bill Reddy is, uh, in the University of Louisville, Louisville, as we say. All right. Uh, you're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Jason Kelly, Vince Signorella here with you on a Friday
2: afternoon. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
1: All right. It's your Friday edition of Business Week Economics, and I'm just saying it right now, Vin Signorella. It's going to be a doozy. We've got Harris oh, yeah. and Riccadonna. You know, we talk about, like, Harrison and Mahidi. They're a group of lawyers. Harris and Riccadonna, it sounds more like like a high-end restaurant group. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, have you been to the new restaurant that uh, the Harris-Riccadonna group has uh,
5: opened? Try the steak. You'll love it. <laughs> uh,
1: exactly. Uh, Carl Riccadonna, that's the voice you just heard. Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. Alex Harris, Bond reporter for Bloomberg joining myself and Vince Signorella here to talk economics all right Carl I want to start with you Job stack. what do you think what, what was the buzz down on the uh, economics desk
5: Sure. Well, the buzz is that uh, February was a fluke and the economy is doing just fine. Uh, Nothing to see here, move along.
1: Nothing to see here, move along. Uh, We
5: saw a little bit of an easing of wage pressures, which people are trying to make too much out of that story. Uh, It's not going to go up every single month. Uh, The uh, year-on-year rate of change is still close to the top end of the range. And if you look at a two- or three-month moving average, it is at the top end of the range. So the fact of the matter is... We have absorbed most of the spare capacity in the labor market. And if we're creating job gains at faster than 100000 uh, per month, uh, we are going to generate labor inflation. And labor inflation is going to mean consumer inflation. And that is not on folks' radar screens right now,
1: including President Trump, yep. who said we have no inflation. All right. I want to get to that in a second. But the, that consumer point is something we were talking about with Alex Harris yes. right when she came in, Ben.
3: Yeah, we just saw consumer credit come out. It's $15.2 a Billion dollars—that seems to be what's driving the economy. But we're also seeing lower wages. The wages growth that we've seen, outside of Alex's husband's uh, bond redemption that we were discussing just a moment ago, is um, that what moved the market? Yeah. You know, I mean, the the, the the gains in wages are coming from the lower end. How much longer can this go on, and how much longer can the consumer hold things up?
6: It's a very good question. I mean, and this is what we were talking about before is that everything is debt driven and you know, the consumer does not have a money tree. We cannot print money like the US government. You know, so at how long before you all get we all get tapped out? And you know, this is something we were also talking about in the lens of tax season. You know, a lot of people are finding as they go to file thinking that, well, I got money back last year. I'm going to get money back this year. We're in for a rude awakening. And, yes, I do attribute that to my husband and his bar mitzvah bonds <laughs> maturing. And, you know, we have some interest that we got to account for <laughs> this year. But, you know, so, again, like, I, you got to watch the consumer and all this and see. And, and to your point, if, you know, wages are increasing on the lower end, like, how long are, how long is this going to hold up?
1: How long is it going to hold up? Well, the same thing that's
5: making them skeptic, uh, the uh, the other side of the table here, the (laughs) nattering nabobs of negativism, uh, is actually making me very optimistic because how long can consumers hold up? Uh, Quite a long time if we're seeing job growth in the vicinity of what we've seen over the last 10 years uh, and uh, income creation, which if we look at aggregate income growth. So the number of workers, the hours worked, the average hourly earnings, uh, that rate of household employment generated income uh, is close to running at the fastest pace of the cycle. So this tells you there's consumer buying power. Yes, they are getting sticker shock from their smaller than expected (laughs) tax refund checks. That maybe explains some of the weakness in consumer activity we saw in December, January, and February. However, While you were watching the the run-up to the jobs report, uh, what you may have missed is that unit motor vehicle sales for the month of March uh, were exceptionally strong. So consumers are starting to open their pocketbooks for those big-ticket purchases, and they don't do that when they're afraid a recession is lurking around the next corner. That's a strong endorsement of economic health.
3: So you see a continued increase in uh, sort of capex spending, durable goods buying, big-ticket items?
5: Well, uh, we're seeing uh, big-ticket purchases from consumers, and uh, that's the main driver of the economy. We're also seeing uh, increasingly over the last several quarters more business investment spending. And that happens as these workers are becoming more expensive – because average hourly earnings are creeping higher. Right. Businesses are looking for ways to minimize labor costs, and that means capital investment. And that has been something that has recently emerged in the economic data classic middle of the ball game development. So we're here 40 quarters out from the Great Recession, tying the record of the 1990s, and this game ain't over. It's a doubleheader.
1: All right, God, so passionately de- de- defending this. Yes. Any rebuttal here, uh, Harris? You're uh, you're skeptical, or are you- so no. much for that
5: yield curve inversion. <laughs>
1: no,
6: not. Oh. Just like, but here's here's Snap. the thing, though. I never thought the yield curve was. In this case, I never thought that the inversion in the three-month, 10-year curve was a signal for recession. Because, because she as knew it was we- caused
5: by the redemption of those bonds. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, that's
6: exactly Bar it. Bar
5: mitzvah bonds. No. They'll get you every time.
6: <laughs> but, you know, Check your know we, we talked about this with Carol last week, is that the yield curve, I don't think, means what it used to mean, in mm. that there's been so much central bank accommodation in the last decade that – I think the bond market has been broken a bit. And so I think what the yield curve is telling you now is a few different things. Is one, you have to account for the decade of central bank accommodation. Two, you have to account for the fact that the Treasury is issuing debt like gangbusters. And we don't know if we're going to see that slow very much when the Fed stops the unwind of the balance sheet. Um, And then the other thing, I mean, you just, these are other factors that weren't there a decade ago, so I don't necessarily think that they're, you know, so when we're talking about curve flattening again today, I'm like, great, I was like, this is just telling us that this is a very, very, very broken market, more than it's telling me we need to worry about recession. But you also have to look at Fed Fund's futures. I mean, people are still sort of leaning more towards cut than they are even just status quo and standing pat. And I do think that there's room for those Fed Fund, those implied rates to come back up, because I think this data is just going to continue to reaffirm that we are middle of the road. That Right. The, the, the
5: point here is, People are not looking for inflation. And, of course, over the last 10 years, we haven't had inflation. Uh, Just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean it won't happen again. Uh, We're getting the labor inflation. If that really does drive consumer prices higher later this year, and mind you, the pace of average hourly earnings growth we're seeing is consistent with the Fed's inflation target being exceeded uh, this year. Uh, If that happens, that means
1: there will have to be a very significant repricing of the market. All right. So – Only got a minute left, so 30 seconds each new members of the fed how much is this sort of rattling uh the chattering class of economists
5: well i think this is uh you know taken out of the playbook of uh, ronald reagan and the end of paul volker's term where yeah. they were stacking the fed to really undermine him uh, i don't know that j powell's going to be undermined here this means there's two dissents from governors which is kind of an unusual thing but the fed will carry on doing what it does uh with two dissents rattling in the background
1: harris your take
6: I think everyone's just shaking their head, honestly. Everyone on the fixed income side is just like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how would you spell?
1: Like,
6: <laughs> I mean, that's it. I mean, yeah. you, how do you have a reaction to people who have very little experience yeah. and no one takes them seriously? Like, you don't. Everyone's just like, oh, great. Like, look at these yahoos that have been nominated to the board, and that's it.
1: Well, that's a very clear opinion that we got there from Alex Harris, <laughs> Bond reporter from Bloomberg. Carl a chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics. All right, you know, Indigo Girls, Friday afternoon, hammering a nail, building some houses. Who better to talk about it? Cheryl Palmer, chairman and CEO of Taylor Morrison Home, based out in Scottsdale, AZ, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio show. Great to see you again. Really
7: good to see you. Thanks, Thanks you for, for having by. me. All
1: right, so it was Jobs Day. We've been talking a lot about that. So let's start there, okay. um, because obviously you work in a very labor-sensitive, shall we say, uh, industry. What did you make of the report, and and what do you see either relative to it that is that matches up or, or maybe doesn't match up with what we heard today?
7: I don't believe any of the numbers that got reported today were a big surprise. Mm-hmm. But when we think about it, probably break it into two segments. When I think about the consumer, I think it's very good news. Yeah. Um, you know, People have good jobs, high productivity. I mean, I think we're seeing that. We're seeing income, slight movement, but we're seeing it. When I think about employment in the construction industry, actually that's a little bit of a different world. I mean, we are really undersourced Mm -hmm. from a labor building homes, and that's part of what's kept the industry in check for so long is we just can't get them built quick enough.
3: And you talk about the consumer and what's looking good for the consumer is the Federal Reserve holding interest rates and with an interest rate outlook potentially not doing anything for quite some time or possibly even cutting. Possibly. Yeah, that's that a big help for you
7: certainly you know there was a lot of noise in the fourth quarter i mean we saw rates not did they just move to five percent but people could argue you know five percent is a good rate it's the speed in which they moved in 2018 um because we had some very interesting stats within our own organization at taylor morrison where people could afford to buy more but it's a it's it's like if gas moves 50 cents in a month, people don't drive this month, right? They don't go on vacation. So it's kind of the same. So there was this emotional impact of the interest rates. We are now seeing rates basically at the same level, even below where they were early last year. So the consumer is feeling much better about that. And we'll see. I think we feel good that we're not going to see any real movement um, this year.
1: So when you when you think about housing prices, housing demand, I feel like Sitting here in New York, and I actually just got back from (laughs) San Francisco, Northern California, we are warped beyond belief in terms of home prices, home values, and seemingly continuing to to go to the sky uh, for the most part. And certainly in San Francisco, I've never seen anything like it. But take us into sort of. The real America, where, where you're operating, especially sort of that that Western uh, slice and and into Texas and, and other places. What does it feel like from a demand perspective?
7: Yeah. Um, on my call in February for the first, you know, for the end of uh, 2018, we talked about what happened in the fourth quarter and kind of the pickup demand we've actually seen each and every week. And uh, there's a, been a couple builders that have reported so far and really talked about kind of a new normal, okay. you know. Um, we were up against, I think the industry was up against some very difficult comps, but the consumer showing up in the communities, um, at all price points, to your point, we're seeing it in that first-time buyer across the country. We're seeing it in that 50-plus lifestyle, and we're seeing it in the first and second-time move-up buyer.
1: And tell us about who those buyers are, because some of the research that that you you and your team provided has talked about single single buyers, you know, non non-married buyers, and tilting toward women rather than men. Did I read that?
7: Yeah, right. you you read that correctly, and um, the numbers I think. Uh, you've seen really talk about the overall market, mm-hmm. but our numbers mirror that pretty closely. Um, about 25% of the buyers out there today are single, and about two-thirds of those buyers are female. So I think it was 18% of the 25 are female, and the balance were men. And then the other interesting stat, and we've seen this one for quite some time, is about 50% of those female buyers are 50-plus. Wow. Yeah,
1: and is that just a demographic uh, sort of shift, sort of the aging of the boomer What What's the...
7: I think it's a number... Of different factors at play. I think absolutely just the demographics working for us. Women tend to outlive men. So I think yeah. you have just the aging population. Sorry <laughs> about that one. Yeah, it's just sort of shuddering. <laughs> Those are just really yeah. the stats. It is what it is. <laughs> uh, I know. Um, I think it talks to kind of the debundling of families too. Yeah. I think separation, divorce rates, I yeah. think you're seeing all of that. And then clearly there's a decision, there's a choice being made amongst women singles in home ownership different than men.
3: Yeah, and you you mentioned I think if I've read this correctly, people looking not not safety like gated communities, but sort of safety in numbers of community, more of a a social.
7: It's an emotional, social sense of community, and that's driving a lot of it. And I think that's driving a lot of it. And we're seeing that interestingly enough, though we're seeing that across all age groups, and I think that's part of why we're seeing people underbuy to their capacity, so they could have, you know. dollars for discretionary use. I
3: I can speak to that personally because the family that just moved in next to us has two young children who make a heck of a lot more noise than the people (laughs) who lived there before. Um, And so that's, you know, I mean, people just really just want to be uh, uh, among... Their peers, essentially, it just gives them more things to do. Connection,
7: right? People. I mean, life is busy, and when you can, when you're at home and be able to connect with your neighbors, I think about. I mean, a long time ago, when my kids were little, and getting to have them outside on the street playing, I think that sense of community is really important. It
1: is, and especially, I feel like in the age of social media, people are really craving that sort of human connection. Uh, Great to connect with you, Cheryl Palmer, (laughs) uh, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. She's based out in Scottsdale. Nice enough to stop by. This is The Drive to the Close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for The Drive to the Close. Aaron Kennan, co-founder and CEO of Clear Harbor Asset Management. He's got more than $700 million in assets. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Aaron, great to be back with you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Alright, so a little green on the screen today, Vince Signorell and I have been watching this day play out. Not a lot of drama uh, post-Jobs Report uh, here early in the month, looking back at March. So what do you make of that to start what we heard from an economic perspective from those payrolls? Well, it's
8: interesting. We certainly saw a weak number uh, in the last data point, but but this morning was quite positive back towards that sort of positive trend line, Jason. And I think what's what's sort of ironic about what we're seeing in the overall market this year is that uh, earnings expectations have trended dramatically lower, probably looking for 3.5% growth among, among average analyst estimates versus, let's say, a 22% earnings growth uh, rate last year. GDP is certainly trending downward, not upward. And, of course, last year markets were down. That is, the equity markets were down. And this year equity markets are up nicely at sort of like a 70 percent annualized pace. Of course, that most likely can't continue. But uh, the irony of, of of those two data points is is quite uh, interesting. And and I would attribute it, frankly, to, to two items. One is easy monetary policy, both home and abroad, and, and the shift in monetary policy at the commencement of the year, both home and abroad, uh, as well as the the, the buyback data, which has been extraordinarily robust. Um, I think there's this perception that there's a fear of missing out in the equity market, and that's why equities are moving higher, but the data doesn't really point to that when you look at the flows data. It's actually pointing to massive corporate purchases of equities, and um, that certainly has uh, thrusted the market upward.
3: Aaron, this is Vincent. First of all, Aaron, uh, congratulations, Forum's Magazine 2019 list of best in-state wealth advisors. Excellent. Thank you, uh, uh-huh. You're welcome. Had, with that, you, you're seeing how I mean how well we've been doing so far, and obviously a quick t- uh, turnaround from 2018. A lot of headwinds or potential headwinds facing us, geopolitical events. We, uh, the trade war still not solved, the presidential election coming up, and the reality of a potential hard Brexit next Friday. Um, do you see any of these really impacting us dramatically?
8: Well, you know, th- these are all important points, and we could we could add to them, right? Venezuela, sure. Iran, North Korea. Um, and, and we always have these various hot uh, points. I, I do think certainly speed bumps will be uh, met along the way. Uh, the hard Brexit uh, certainly has repercussions for currency. I think the conversations with China and the U.S. seem to be trending in a positive direction. Um, What's interesting is the the Chinese equity market rebounded long before there was sort of optimism of a quote-unquote deal with the U.S. I think the Chinese equity markets are now up over 30% year-to-date, and the U.S. market, of course, is up over 15% here in the U.S. And so um, I almost feel like the the pendulum has shifted a little bit where we're perhaps a little overly optimistic. But at the end of the day, global growth, um, global earnings – and global capital flows will drive
1: the underlying markets. And I think we need to keep our eye on, on those balls. And so how do you invest in a market like this, Aaron? You know, given everything uh, that you've just said and and especially given – I feel like we're in these like little reversal of courses modes over the over the past couple months. You know, December, everybody freaked out about the drop in, in equities, And then that, that bounced back. And as you said, based on the jobs report, February now looks like uh, a blip. And so how much weight do you give the cautious and how much weight do you give the optimism here? And, and yeah. what is that and how does that translate into a strategy?
8: Right. So that's a great question. And to us, it's every client is different. Mm -hmm. Every client is wired differently, whether it's institutional or individual. So risk management and understanding their own risk appetite, whether it's emotional risk appetite or financial risk appetite, meaning their willingness to see their portfolio draw down significantly, those are all really important things. And then we need to sort of size up our asset classes, where we are in the valuation for each asset class, how much of that asset class needs to be allocated to each client portfolio so that they can achieve their goals without taking what we call the scenic route (laughs) Uh, or to avoid taking uh, the scenic route. Um, Sometimes clients take on excess uh, risk to achieve a goal that doesn't require that excess risk, so it, it's really client dependent, but as it pertains to different interesting opportunities in the market, we're seeing a lot out there across credit and across equities. I mean you look at the proliferation of semiconductors, whether it, it, you're, you're talking about the uh, onset of 5G or self-driving or yeah. AI, the growth of data centers, uh, just within technology, that's a really interesting space. There's a huge oligopoly there um the the water distribution utilities and natural gas distribution utilities is one area within the utility segment that the media that frankly doesn't talk about because it's like sort of small cap mid cap and we just hear about the electric generation utilities that frankly have cost overruns as long, as far as the eye can see oftentimes and so we try to look under the hood at things that other people are not always looking at um but at the end of the day we're also trying to size up um, you know, where the global economy is headed so that we're not, um, you know, sort of allocating capital excessively at moments when we're when we're perhaps supposed to be putting our foot at least on the on the, on the brake a little bit.
1: All right. Well, I think it's going to be an interesting if uh, you might know, see, Vince, I was thinking earlier, you know, we heard from uh, a guest, I think, in the post sort of job day analysis that you know first quarter feels good, second quarter feels good, third quarter, maybe we start to uh, to get some questions Aaron Kennan co founder and CEO of Clear Harbor Asset Management, looking after more than seven hundred million dollars, he joined us on the phone. From New York City. My favorite thing about Aaron, he serves on the board of the Atlantic Salmon Federation. I love talking to him about that. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.